At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a healthcare podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and are restoring trust in American healthcare. For anybody who is familiar with the direct primary care industry for the past, oh, I don't know, 10 years or give or take, this name really needs no introduction, a titan in the industry, one uh, somebody that who I've looked up to for a, a good portion of my career and somebody who has amazing insights to share with physicians across the country, Dr. Jeffrey Gold, owner of Gold Direct Care. Dr. Gold, thank you for taking time to join us here on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. There are a million questions swimming in my mind, so I want to not get ahead of myself because that's when I lose, you know, I, I forget how to actually talk and put questions together and that type of a thing. So first I want to start off, you know, a little bit of a of the superhero origin story. Those are all the rage these days. Give us a little example and give us some kind of uh, some background on how you founded Gold Direct Care way back when and kind of what led you to it. Yeah, I think, you know, if you know anyone in healthcare, whether it's uh, a nurse, a doctor, an office worker, a physical therapist, um, everybody kind of, you know, hears the same issues that come up with people working in the system. And I think it needs to be clarified because the burnout is not due to working hard, taking care of patients. People think that Doctors, nurses leave the system to do direct primary care, concierge medicine, or whatever other term to make their life less hard in terms of work. And you don't go through four years of medical school and a minimum of three years of residency training, working 40-hour shifts uh, with no sleep if you don't mind working hard. The burnout comes from working hard at doing things that have nothing to do with what you train to do and nothing to do with patient care. So I think it's always important to clarify what the burnout really is from. So for all those reasons that you've heard many, many times, I was getting to the point that I was just sick of listening to myself complain. You know, it got to a point where I said, Jeff, you either got to shut up and just accept that this is what it is and do it and keep your mouth shut and accept that this is the system and this is your job and make the best of it. Like I think a lot of people in the current system do or make a change and do something different. And the concierge model had is pretty prevalent around the greater Boston area. And I knew a little bit about it and I don't begrudge any physician or patient or anyone doing it. Uh, just for me, it seemed 
like we were just further creating a two-tiered system and not really getting to the root of what the problems with our current system are. But again, I don't begrudge anybody doing it. I get all the reasons why they do it. And I had never heard about direct primary care. There was no one really doing it in Massachusetts. And, you know, I just happened to be, you know, screwing around on social media one night and saw a tweet and, you know, I said, hashtag DPC. And I hit reply all, what's that? And kind of the rest is history. I, I didn't think that I would ever be this interested in fixing a system. I always thought like, I just wanted to do my thing and take care of patients, but it's, you know, and that is the main reason why I did this. But the secondary reason is I've just really dug deep into how corrupt and how screwed up this system is. And I'm trying my damnedest to at least leave some type of footprint for change. Kudos to you, obviously. I think that's why I get along with you is that Instead of saying, you know what, I'm just going to complain about it every time when I get home about how many patients I saw and all this kind of stuff, throwing my hands up, you actually went out and did something, right? So hats off to you, kudos to you. Obviously, an inspiration to a lot of people out there. I wanted to focus, you know, burnout's one of those words in my mind. I hear that, and it's almost, and this is probably just being in the industry for a while here, but it's a lot of those, not necessarily a throwaway word, but people use it a lot, like, oh, I'm burnout, I'm burnout, I'm burnout. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, Dr. Gold, if this was any other industry, there would be massive employer lawsuits against hospitals, employers, those companies that are putting doctors through this rigmarole, putting them through the ringer, I guess is a better way to say that. When you talk to other physicians who are saying, hey, how'd you do this? What 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 went on? Is that kind of pervasive across the spectrum of these docs that say, I can't go out and practice anymore. If I don't do this, I'm going to leave medicine altogether. Yeah, I think, you know, look, I, I agree with you that, you know, the term burnout is just kind of a, I've always said. Like, it doesn't do it justice, right? Like it's yeah. moral injury I've heard. I yeah, mean, no, it, it's, it's like. Moral. It's, it's actually like what I've, and, and, and I put patients in the same category as well. This is not to mean that doctors are the only ones suffering you know, in this system. But the reality is, is it's, it's, it's no different than emotional abuse. And I think we sugarcoat it. You know, I think we try to beat around the bush here, but the reality is, you know, we now have the highest rate of suicide of any profession in in the U S people want to do yoga and put band-aids and breathing exercises on it. And it's not that those things aren't helpful, but the reality is it's just like everything else you know, you got to get to the root of the problem and not just shift, you know, the deck chairs on the Titanic, the course of the boat and the iceberg were, were the problem, not the fact that there was water filling the boat. That was a consequence of what, you know, the problem is. And, and I think this is prevalent in a lot of aspects of American culture and, in general, in our way of thinking is what's the immediate band-aid to fix the problem so we don't have to sit in any emotional or physical discomfort. But the reality is, if you really want to mitigate change and have change happen, you have to be willing to sit in that emotional and physical discomfort to get through it if you want to evoke meaningful change. Otherwise, the rest is just a waste of time, in my opinion. It's the status quo, right? You got to you got to push a little bit for someone to see, like, oh, look, 
there's a different way to do this. This is this is nuts to continue going on. I think it's a shame that it's happening to you know physicians in our in our in our country here. Some of the best and brightest, most empathetic people out there who actually devote their lives, like you said earlier, to caring to other people. You bring up an interesting point on you know it's not just doctors and nurses who are who are you know suffering from emotional abuse and, and suffering from the system. I always say it's like. It's like running secretariat every single day of the week. It's just impossible. He's going to break down at some point in time. It's just you can't do that on redline at every single time. You brought up patience. Dive a little bit more into what you're seeing there because that's an interesting concept that I don't think we hear enough about of, you know, patients getting lost in the system and patients suffering due to the current economic model of healthcare. Yeah, I mean, I think they're the most important because the reality is, is, you know, we're patients too. We're all patients at some point. And, you know, what kind of system do we want for ourselves, for our family members, for our loved ones? I've kind of phrased it in a couple ways in the past. You know, one is this emotionally abusive Stockholm syndrome type issue where, you know, when you have someone coming in in an abusive relationship, the first thing you tell them is how do we help you extract yourself from that relationship? And unfortunately, you know, with the Stockholm syndrome type model, you see psychologically people adapting to who their abductor is or abuser is in order to survive. I mean, it's, it's a survival mechanism. So I've framed it in that way in the past, which I think a lot of people have, but the other model that I've kind of framed it in is the addiction model. If you ever read a really good book is uh, Dreamland, uh, which was written by Sam Canones. He is the one that kind of exposed the whole Purdue Oxy issue in the L.A. Times and wrote like a huge piece about it. And he wrote this book called Dreamland, which is really about how the Mexican drug cartels got black tar heroin into the US, how they sold it, and how did they get people hooked? And it's honestly probably the most brilliant business model you could ever come up with. And it's a major reason why we're dealing with, you know, the issues we're dealing with in terms of addiction. And that's, I hate to say it, but that's kind of what, what I call the cartel did with health insurance and healthcare and, you know, basically got the American public to believe that Everything in medicine is so expensive that if you don't use insurance to pay for it, you're going to be left on the street broke, dying alone. No one's going to take care of you and put this fear of God in. So what do you do? You give people free stuff. You know, you give them, you know, this $10 copay and everything else is free and you get people hooked and now they're hooked. And now the sickness is, is hitting them and they're not sure how to how to get out. And even when they are trying to get out, it's like the pain of withdrawal is so bad that they relapse and can't pull themselves back out. And it's it's psychology. It's not that they're, I think, consciously doing anything wrong. It's just that's how you behave when you're struggling with an abusive relationship, whether it's with a person or a substance. It's a, it's a, it's a great take. And 
I'm kind of thinking here, you know, in this example, I'm trying to identify, you talked about Stockholm Syndrome. I'm trying to figure out who the abductor, who that captor is. Is that the insurance companies? Is that just this pervasive education that or miseducation, I would say? Or is that, you know, fee-for-service hospitals? I think it's a combination of all the above. I'm not, I always say I'm not anti-insurance. I'm anti-insurance for dumb things. I say I'm not anti-government, I'm anti-ineffective government or self-interested government. But like what I, you know, the irony is what's the opposite argument to what we have now that a lot of the public wants and and our uh, policymakers want to push a single payer, single payer, single payer. I'm like, guess what? You already have it. Um, And I'll explain what I mean by that. What we have is this distorted form of socialized medicine under the guise of insurance. We don't have health insurance. It's not health insurance. Insurance is a financial transfer of risk. If health insurance worked the way that I think it should work and that any other type of insurance works, the $250 mammogram that a woman needs every year wouldn't be free. They would just pay the $250 or probably even lower than that to get their annual mammogram. And then God forbid, if there was a tumor or an abnormality that they needed follow-up testing, biopsy, imaging, whatever, your insurance would protect you against the financial ruin of that unknown. We say, we're going to give you that carrot. We're going to give you that free mammogram that you think is $1,500, $2,000, but then we're going to expose a majority of Americans to a $3,000, $6,000 deductible. So it doesn't make sense. And so what I tell people when they say, what do you mean we have a single payer? If you've ever seen The Wizard of Oz, it's like there's the guy behind the curtain, right? The way we have things right now is you have the government, particularly Congress, behind the curtain. And you have these multi-billion dollar, rich, profitable insurance companies in front of the curtain that are allowed to have corruptive behavior and rob people blind because of the people behind the curtain are allowing them to do it. If we had a single payer system in name, you just flip who the positions in the curtain. And what I mean by that is like take Medicaid plans. Most Medicaid plans are actually managed by private insurers. Look at what's happening with Medicare Advantage plans. They're all managed by private insurance companies. So that's kind of just what we would end up having. And so it's just kind of rinse and repeat. And who do you want to blame? You can blame anyone. I mean, there's a lot to blame. Doctors aren't off the hook either. I mean, we, you know, generations prior allowed this crap to happen. And now we're sitting there saying, oh, you know, I'm retired playing golf all day while the next generation of physicians and nurses and patients are suffering. You mentioned legacy before. And I think that's that's exactly what it is. Like, you know, sins of the past are revisited upon this current generation of physicians out here. And great points. And I appreciate the behind the scenes look at how insurance, because I totally agree with you that when someone says, oh, we just got to turn to the government to solve it. I'm like, we're nine out of 10 steps already there. I'm right there with you. Instead of just, you know, the government being the single payer, we have four, maybe five that already do it. And if you don't like this, guess what? You're really going to hate when there's an absolute monopoly because 
anybody who's taken economics at a high school level can understand that monopolies are very good for the monopolist, very bad for the consumers. Right. And you can't have, you know, as you go back to economics, and I, I say this all the time, I never took an econ 101 class in four years of college, but you cannot have an unlimited demand for a product or service, in this case, healthcare or access to it, with a very limited supply. Like it just, this is Econ 101. It just, it just doesn't work. And just as you can't have price control without quality and price transparency. So these basic, again, getting back to what I said at the beginning, you can't just keep plugging your finger in the dike. Like you've got to actually take a step back and look and say, what are the fallacies that are allowing this stuff to happen? And as I always say, if we really want this system fixed, then doctors and patients included, every citizen in this country should be rioting in the streets about this crap because they're getting robbed every goddamn day. And it's enough. You now have other options. You know, 30 years ago, other than, you know, maybe high price concierge medicine, there were no other options, whether it was primary care, whether it was specialty care. Now there's options. So stop complaining about it and actually do something about it because it really is their money. You know, the whole my employer pays for it. No, they don't. You pay for it. Wake up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, people look at that. And we've had, you know, from our our standpoint, our company, Freedom Health Works, we provide a direct primary care plan. We'll actually provide a direct dental and direct optometrist plan coupled with a health share. And we've had team members who come up and say, I'm making more money than I ever had before because I don't have to pay for that massive insurance benefit coming out of it. And guess what? I actually have a better relationship with my trusted medical team that's caring for me, actually gives a about me. And I got a better health plan coming out of it. Once again, uh, for the audience out there, we we're talking to Jeffrey Gold of Gold Direct Care. Curious, what are some of the things that your detractors say when you were starting up your practice? Did anybody come up to you and say, hey, you're you're going to just leave people to die out on the streets. You're not going to take care of the most vulnerable. What were some of the uh, some of the naysayers? What would they tell you? Oh, I mean, it was anywhere from the general. This is never going to work in Massachusetts. You know, everybody has insurance. What do they need you for? Romney care. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't realize that insurance provided medical decision care, you know, making and, you know, sat at the bedside or in the exam room with you and actually did your exam. Uh, That was all news to me. And then it went to the specific stuff of not everyone can afford this. And I said, okay, there, there's a small percentage of the country that, you know, truly cannot afford what we do. But I think there's ways around that if policymakers would actually listen to the people actually doing what we do. I always ask people, I say, you know, do you think the justice or the legal system could use some reparation or, you know, fixing and everybody universally answers yes. So I say, would you bring a bunch of doctors in to do it? No. Okay, then why do we have a healthcare system that's basically being controlled by a bunch of business people and bureaucrats? You get what you pay for. So, you know, here we are. But I think that the two specific arguments are that not everybody can afford it or that, like you said, you're going to leave people to die in the street. My argument to 
rebuttal to the first one is if you look at statistics, and these are simple things you can Google, what percentage of the American population has a cell phone? About 98%. If then if you look and see what the average cell phone monthly bill is, it's usually around 75, I think 80, maybe a little higher. So 98% of the American population can afford DPC. It's whether they want to or not. And that's how a market works. If they don't want to and they don't see the value, that's okay. We, we have the system that they can fall right back into, but don't complain about it, okay? Because you can afford what we do, you just don't want to. And that's okay. That's your choice. The second argument, you know, about scaling this downstream to the people who are underserved and truly need this, I think they're the ones that truly need this. If the government actually gave a about that population, they would actually be coming to us being like, how do we get you docs to do either, you know, where we give subsidies or, you know, we give an EBT card where people can go buy Coca-Cola, but we can't give them a $100, $150 a month card to access a direct primary care physician, please. That's because the data, the health, the health data is far more valuable than consumer behavior because that's already tracked to their credit cards. And there's your answer right there on why that's not happening. That was from Seema Werner's mouth herself when she was in charge of CMS. They only cater about the data. But, you know, the reality is, is, is when, whether you look at Medicare or Medicaid, just like employer groups, they already have the data that they need to see whether this works or not. They have downstream claims that they can look at and be like, how many urgent care visits? How many ER visits did we reduce? How many specialty visits did we reduce? They, this could be the easiest study and pilot ever done. Like you already have know where to get the data from and have it readily accessible. It's just they don't they don't want to. Plain and simple. They don't want to get out of the middle of controlling the dollar. And as we know, who controls the dollar controls the puppets. Plain and simple. Yep. I think you're I think you're right there, you know, the C word, the control, the control That's aspect of it. And of course in government, you know, you don't you don't use your budget. Guess what happens next year? goes down. I mean, that's that's the oldest trick in the book here. Once again, we're talking with Dr. Jeffrey Gold of Gold Direct Care. Dr. Gold, I want to focus our time on really the macro, what I consider to be macro, still a very fledgling industry. You spend a lot of time going to conferences, giving speeches. I've seen you on the stage a few times and always enjoy what you have to say there. In your mind, and this is, this is a question that I kind of rack my brain with you know, all the time, why are we only seeing about 2,000 to 3,000 practices nationwide? Why isn't this 200,000? Why aren't we at 300,000 practices as we agree that this is a great business model? It, it helps a physician. It helps a patient. Why aren't people moving in droves? Um, I think it gets back to, I think it's much less a financial issue, even though that's what people use as an excuse. I think it's much more of a psychological issue. Like we talked about earlier, you know, this is what people know. And this is, even though it's not working for them, this is what they're used to. So I think that's almost like breaking that addiction or uneducating and then having to go back and educate as to why this actually makes sense for them. Um, that's a really, really hard thing. And I think that that is the major reason why it's such a challenge to see more. Number two is obviously the financial risk. I mean, I'm pretty open about my situation where I had a patient who, you know, was my angel investor and helped me, you know, get this going. But 
the lack of education and in, in medical training about how to run a business, no matter whether you're DPC or a specialist or, you know, I, I think it's disgusting that there is no teaching on the business of insurance, how hospital systems work and no curriculum on that, you know, going through medical training, whether it's residency, undergrad, you know, medical school, whatever. But, you know, I have to take organic chemistry, which I never use, but nothing practical. So, so I think the psychology, the education or lack thereof, the financial concerns about having a mortgage to pay and kids to take care of and bills to pay and student loans to pay, to sit there and, and take that leap when there's no guarantee that people are going to come pay you. If anything, it's probably more of a guarantee, like in my situation, that's going to be plug and tooth and nail to get people in the door and get them out of that psychological addiction or Stockholm syndrome that they're in. So I think until there's a shift in the demand for this and, you know, I look at the law of numbers and even though I don't agree that employers should have anything to do with health insurance, um, you know, that goes back to World War II, it's not going to change anytime soon. So when you look at where people get their benefits from, a majority of people in the U.S. get them through their employer. So that's why I think the employer benefits advisors are such a huge way for us to get more of that demand up so that I can go to a colleague and say, look, I'm not in a situation that I can salary you or provide benefits or I can help out a little bit, but we have a company in this area with 300 employees that are going to be all yours to start with, whether it's an on-site clinic, near-site clinic, whatever. Until people start demanding change, it is going to be very, very difficult. I mean, don't get me wrong. Doctors are doing it. They're, some of them are doing it right out of residency. Others are leaving um, you know, their employed jobs. But you come to an area like this, I mean, we're seeing specialty groups now bought up by hospital systems. Like no one is immune to this. And patients... And employers need to start asking who do they want making their medical decisions. And then with that, who am I going to pay to do that? Do you believe that there is a patient demand problem or a lack of supply from just a sheer number of DPC practices out there? Talking about you know just basic economics is kind of a pervasive theme amongst this. Yeah, I think in this case, it's a combination of both. I think you have such a broken down group of people on both sides, both the physicians and the patients that I think everybody's just trying to tread water and figure out how to survive. And that's why I think it is so important that we unify that schism that's been created where, you know, so many patients don't think the doctor is looking out for their best interest or whatever. And it's because of all these third parties, you know, like, Unless you're in an open relationship, bringing a third party in usually doesn't do anybody good, right? And here we are in this other important relationship where people are telling you all their good secrets, their bad secrets in an exam room, but then we have third parties ephemerally floating around in that exam room making the decisions. So... I think people just need to start asking 
the really, really hard questions. And that means taking accountability, looking in the mirror. I, I was part of the problem too. You know, when I was employed by the hospital system, I had no idea how much money was taken out of my paycheck for health insurance. I just saw I had a, I had a card. I didn't care. I was part of the problem. I was a doctor practicing in a system where I knew what nothing cost, didn't know anything about quality, was just doing what I was told to do by the system that I worked for. So I think the hardest thing for a lot of Americans to do and people in general is look in the mirror and be like, what am I, what good am I bringing to the table and what not so good am I bringing to the table and how do I fix the not so good part? That's what everybody needs to start doing is asking those really hard questions and looking in the mirror and be like, how am I contributing to this problem? Because we're all to blame. And when you're in a David versus Goliath situation, you know, when you're dealing with some of the richest corporations in America and a government that's allowing them to run amok, as you probably see me put on LinkedIn a lot, I say, if you want to kill a bee, stop feeding it. It's the only way to kill it. You can't, we don't have you know, the manpower right now in that supply side to make the demand automatically happen, right? So you got to stop feeding the beast that we've, that we've built. And we're all guilty of that. I'm curious, as you travel the country and, and you're asked to speak at different conferences and conventions, is there any, any like one or two pervasive thoughts amongst the attendees, amongst the speakers that really frustrate you and I'm thinking things that might even limit doctors jumping into this industry, things that you, people will say, and you're like, well, that's not really right. That's, that's counterintuitive of what we're trying to build here as a DPC industry. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the big one, you know, if you really want to get me fired up and, and bring out, you know, the former hockey player side of me, you know, is tell me that, you know, I'm doing this to make myself have an easier life and, and, and be rich. Like, that's one way you're just, I'll go toe-to-toe with you all day. You know, that's coming more from the policy side. I think some of the things I hear on the doctor side of things is, you know, this sounds so great, but I can't do it. Why? Why, why, why you went through four years of college, four years of medical school, and three years of minimum of residency, and you're telling me you can't figure this out? You know, that's frustrating to me. But I, I get where that comes from because I was probably guilty of that, too. And I think on, you know, the patient side, you know, the frustration on my end is just just listen. When I left my hospital based job, I left about 3000 patients. And after 10 years, only 100 came with me. And where are the people just asking me, what are you doing and why are you doing it? At least educate me and you know, and then, like I said, if you make a decision that this isn't for you or you're unsure about it, that's OK. You have the right to choose. But, you know, at least get informed and at least get educated. Don't just sit there and think it's eight hundred fifty dollars a month when it's eighty five, um, which you go spend, you know, on a bottle of wine every Friday night at dinner. It just comes back to, again, I think personal accountability all of us looking within to say, okay, how do we fix this? What can we do to fix it? What's our part? And we all have a part in that. I'm curious, Dr. Gold, you know, as we, this will be, this will be our last question here, kind of, kind of wrapping up here. Whenever you get somebody who comes up to you, a high school student or college kid comes up and says, oh, this is so cool. I want to be a doctor. Do you recommend that they go to medical school? Do you say, hey, that's a great idea. I would do it again. 
Um, that's a really ooh, throw me a real screwball there. That's a tough one. Um, I was waiting for the right down the middle fastball. Um, I think it's a really hard question to answer right now, to be honest. I think that depending on what medical education is going to look like, you know, in the near future, it's tough for me to answer that. I mean, I obviously want people to do what they feel is going to make them happy. And, you know, as we know, like, it's not a job when you enjoy doing what you're doing. And that's truly, you know, how I feel right now. But I don't see the type of solid change that we really need happening in a quick fashion. I think it's going to be a very long drawn out, you know, it's, we didn't get here overnight, you know, it's not going to get fixed overnight. I mean, I always want people to pursue their passion, but I think it's very, very challenging to tell them, yes, go to med school without the corollary of, let me give you the heads up though, of what things are going to look like. Cause I think we all go in with this idealistic view, like you said, of helping people, healing people, having a job that challenges us, you know, academically and cerebrally and emotionally every day to finding out that what we're signing up for is a li little bit different in reality. So I think college students, high school students that are thinking about medicine, I really encourage them to find a local, you know, physician that they can sit down and grab coffee with or shadow around for the day and really see what it looks like before they make that decision. What I'm hearing is if you go to medical school, make sure you go with the idea that you're going to go into direct care very shortly after that, right? I mean, that's what I want to do. I mean, that's my whole mission. And I feel like I've accomplished stage one, which is I've shown that you can have a profitable DPC practice in a highly regulated state like Massachusetts, where everybody has insurance. But now my mid to long term goal is build a system that makes it easier for my colleagues and patients to get into this and not have it be the niche market it is, but actually have it be the norm. You know, I always end my talks with, you know, the Buckminster Fuller quote, and I always butcher it. But, you know, you can't fix, you know, the current system. You got to break it down and build a new one that works. And I think that that's kind of pretty emblematic of what we need to do with healthcare. I couldn't agree more, which is why I always enjoy talking to you. And whenever I see your name on the docket, I'm like, that's where I'm going to go. Nice. Well, I appreciate that. It means a lot because I... As I told you aside, I hate public speaking. I really do. And I've gotten better at it, but I still get the nerves. So I really appreciate you uh, saying that it means a lot. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and when you see eye to eye and you say, all right, we're going to, you know, Freedom Health Group is trying to fix it from our direction and trying to empower a lot of physicians to get them up and going and give them a nice playbook to be able to do that. And from your side, goodness gracious, you know, you can influence so many different people and show them that, hey, this is real. And I think that's what's one of the biggest barriers to the industry right now is people are like, oh, that's a nice thought. You know, that's a nice little utopian little thought right there. And um, people like you are are showing them that, hey, this is real. We're making an impact on people's lives in every single day situations. And it's powerful. Yeah, and I'll finish, Chris, just by adding, not to cut you off, but I think that you brought, just to echo your sentiment of it being real part of the reason why it is so hard to sell this, whether it's to an employer or a doctor or a patient is they don't get to see how the sausage is made. So like, come see it, like actually 
see the difference between the primary care model that you're used to versus what we're doing here. My patients love it when I host people to shadow or, you know, whether it's an employer, a doctor, they don't care. They, they want people to see that there is a different way. So take that concept and actually make it real to yourself. That's brilliant. Really. Dr. Jeff Gold, Gold Direct Care, thank you for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. And I uh, hope you have a good fall season. I appreciate you having me on. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list and visit our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.